Let's turn back the clock by millions of years. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, May 19th. This is In the Moment. I hope you've loved our week of science coverage. If you did, then I'm happy to say hello to a fellow science lover. We're ending this week with my favorite scientific field, paleontology. We'll revisit my top four conversations with South Dakota's paleontologists. That includes interviews on decomposition, dinosaur-mammal relations, extreme climate change of the past, and a scientist studying prehistory who's making history herself. Plus, I found a poem that I can't wait to share with you. We're broadcasting today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Ellen Kester, in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. probably not used to hearing my voice over your airwaves. I'm a relatively new producer on the In The Moment team, but in my time at SDPB, I'm excited to have brought more science stories to the show. You've heard a few of those stories this week. To kick off our paleontology show today, I'm starting with Lori's 2019 interview with Sarah Keenan. I hope you're not eating as Sarah joined the show to dive into decomposition. From a deer hit by a car last week to a dinosaur killed millions of years ago, she unpacked what happens to animals after they die. Sarah is a paleontologist and assistant professor of geology and geological engineering at South Dakota Mines. And one of the things I'm really curious about is, are we still learning about how this works, or is this science that, you know, is pretty established? Yeah, so we're definitely still learning a lot about how an animal decomposes and how the nutrients that are held in an animal are returned back into the environment. So there's still a lot that we just really don't know at all. And we've been studying it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. In the U.S., we have a really long history of studying decomposition. Um, It started primarily with human decomposition in Tennessee, um, and now we've kind of expanded to other animals as well. All right. So how how far back? I mean, I'm thinking dinosaurs, and I mean, like, you know, tell me what what's still revealing secrets? Is it things that have have died? You know, thousands of years ago, or are we learning things from animals who have died in the last you know more recent times? Um, Both, actually. So we're learning a lot about decomposition in modern settings. So, you know, you see a dead deer on the side of the road. We still don't know how long it takes for that deer to completely decompose. So we're using a lot of observations of modern systems to be able to do a little arm waving and reconstruct our fossil record. Interesting. All right. So what can a deer decomposing or a squirrel, (laughs) as I live in Sioux Falls, and, you know, there's quite a few of those on the road sometimes, Um, What can they teach us about other animal decomposition? Well, we can look, I mean, animals all are made of the same things. We have bones and we have soft tissues. So we can look at how soft tissues um, degrade and how the carbon and nitrogen that's held in, in all animals' soft tissues are returned to the environment. And we can get a good handle on the timing and the rates and then use that to reconstruct what happened to now extinct animals like dinosaurs. Okay, so tell me how you do your science. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sounds a little weird. Um, Step one is find dead animals. So all of the animals that I use in my research are nuisance animals that are salvaged. um, So I I don't go out killing anything. It's all, you know, things that other people are killing because they're invasive or nuisance. So um, things like beavers are, are really good animals to use for this. And you essentially set them up in an area where you want to prevent scavengers from from removing the animals. And then you just 
watch over time and collect soil and gas samples and see what happens. <laughs> I love science. <laughs> All right. So how do you create a space where the, where the, anyway, you can't take it into a lab? No, I mean, well, right. you can, but then you don't have friends after that. So <laughs> usually do it outside <laughs> um, and just set up uh, scavenger prevention enclosures, which are okay. basically just dog cages. Um, and then you just set them up and you know, you have to find land first. So fortunately out here, I've been really lucky to uh, connect with a local rancher who's letting me use some of his land to do these experiments. So that's been incredibly helpful. So when you're at a party (laughs) telling people what you do, they're either like, you're the most interesting person in the room or pretty soon you're standing by yourself, depending on. Yep. It's, it's pretty much like that. Uh, Same when I give talks, sometimes people leave the room, which is, you know, that's fine. <laughs> but the fascinating thing is then, so just conducting an experiment, I, I'm just thinking of the control. I mean, it seems like it's, there's so many things happening. How, like, what are you trying to learn? Do you have a hypothesis? Like, what, how do you narrow it down to some useful information that has value scientifically? Yes, that's a really good question. Um, right now, we're still trying to learn a lot about the nitrogen cycle in particular. So um, these first series of experiments, we went in trying to test the hypothesis that nitrogen would not stick around for a long time. It would be reused by microorganisms and plants in the environment very rapidly. Um, So right now, um, we're doing these same types of experiments in South Dakota, and we really don't know what to expect. So my hypothesis is that the decomposition process and um, return of nutrients is going to take a very long time um, because we have a lot less rainfall than areas like in, in Tennessee. Um, we have our soils typically have a lot lower nitrogen. So it's going to take a long time for these materials to be uh, essentially recycled. Does it matter? I mean, uh, um, I'm wondering the interconnection between other animals, other creatures. It, it, you know, you're eliminating the scavengers. Um, but do the scavengers or, or, you know, insects, for example, do they contribute to the decomposition? How, how much is interconnected here that you're able to, to watch? It's, it's highly interconnected. So um, by using the cages, we're preventing large vertebrate scavengers, but insect activity is still permitted. So okay. um, blowfly larvae or maggots are one of the largest contributors to um, degrading soft tissues. Uh, so we still allow that process to happen. And then beetles and other insects are able to come in still. Um, but by preventing s- large scavengers, we make sure that there's a, a large pulse of this activity and everything is contained to one area. Right. What do we know and what do we not know about the importance of that? Um, so we know that the nutrients are really important um, in terms of carbon and nitrogen being reused by microbes that are present in the soil and then eventually by plants um, that can grow once those nutrients are put into a usable form. Um, But we we don't really know how long uh, a decomposition signature can persist in the soil environment. Um, So some of the work that I've done, we've actually still been able to recover this signature of death um, or chemical signature for up to two years. So there's still a lot of unknown about the timing and in terms of how long those nutrients can persist before they're completely exhausted by the environment. 
Okay, so the signature of death needs to be your book, right? Yes, that's a great title. <laughs> what that means in my mind then is that you can go out into a, a you know, field, for example, and you can test the soil and you can see that something was there. Is that what yeah, I'm missing? That's, there? Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, that's potentially one of the applications. Is that you know you can find clandestine sites where an animal decomposed previously or was then moved or something like that. Right. How did you get interested in this science? Well, I'm actually a, a paleontologist, yeah. so this all these soft parts is, is very new for me. Um, sure. I started my PhD watching alligators decompose, and then I realized that we don't know a lot about the decomposition process, so I actually somehow found a postdoc that was studying this specifically. So for me, it was a great transition to go from studying hard parts and fossil bones to go come back to the modern and think about what's happening now that eventually enables our fossil record to be created. That's fascinating. And how are we impacting that fossil record as humans now because of how we handle decomposition of humans and animals? Exactly. Yeah. Burial and preservation, um, you know, like inserting formaldehyde and stuff is uh, definitely disrupting the natural order of things. Okay. In 30 seconds, what would be a better way to do it? From a human burial, <laughs> from a human burial standpoint, as a scientist, not as a you know a religious leader or a grief counselor or anything like that, but as a scientist, what would be the best uh, sort of ecological thing to do with the humans when they die? Uh, just natural decomposition, just allowing either leaving humans on the surface to decompose or mixing them with some soil and very shallow burial. That sounds very morbid. <laughs> right. Well, again, we're talking scientifically, yeah. not yeah. as, you know, necessarily what's good for, you know, the human family. But yeah, fascinating, though. That was Lori Walsh's 2019 conversation with paleontologist Sarah Keenan. They had a delightful discussion on decomposition. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Ellen Kester, in for Lori Walsh. I'll give you a peek behind the curtain, or rather a peek into the sound booth. This next interview was supposed to last seven minutes. It ended up clocking in at almost 18 minutes. It went long to accommodate the panicky producer in the booth, that was me, as she tried to contact our next guest. But as you'll hear, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Alex Dechecki is an assistant professor of biology at Mount Marty University in Yankton. He joined the show in January to discuss two research papers of his that found their way into the national spotlight. His research shed light on how prehistoric birds took flight and also on dinosaur-mammal relations and diets. With the extra time he got, he gave Lori and our listeners a deep dive into his research, his field as a whole, and his wealth of dinosaur fun facts. A little Science Friday conversation today. Let's start with who eats whom in the dinosaur world. What did your research show that was unexpected? Walk us through it. So our research showed uh, that in the belly of one small little feathered dinosaur, we found uh, a mammal, and this mammal would be just a bit bigger than a mouse. And uh, what was really interesting about this is it showed the behavior of this small feathered dinosaur and how they would interact with the uh, organisms around them. We'd previously seen fish and birds, actually, and uh, other specimens of the same species. But now by having a mammal in there, we really could flesh out that this critter was pretty much a generalist. Uh, uh, the animal itself was about the size of a house cat, the largest ones maybe the size of a fox. And in many ways, that's what they acted like. Anything mm -hmm. that they could sort of catch, they would eat. 
How was it discovered, the Microraptor, the little fox-sized dude? Because <laughs> now I've got so, this in my mind. <laughs> so this specimen uh, was first described quite a while ago. Um, mm. But when I was visiting uh, Beijing uh, with when I was a grad student uh, many years ago, uh, we were looking at the specimen for something else. I work on flight. And so I was looking at its arms and its feathers and everything like that. And there was a little piece of it, which was the rib cage, and it was off to the side. And we sort of decided, oh, we'll look at that too, because no one really paid attention to that part. And as soon as we looked at it, we, we saw a foot. And uh, I say it's sort of like a Where's Waldo moment, because as soon as it, we saw it for the first time, it sort of pops out, and then you can never not see it. And we were like, someone else must see this. And so we talked to our colleagues there, and they were like, we've never seen that. We just never looked at that region. And so then we started to see what the foot could tell us about the behavior of the mammal. And then we started to look at other uh, fossils around there and see other evidence of diet. Then we looked at the teeth and the jaws of the the species. And so we could get a whole sense of what they ate and not just in a sort of a theoretical like, oh, I think X could eat Y. But now we say, well, no, we know it could eat this. And we know it did this. And so this is, it really brings them back to life in a, in, a, in a whole new way. Yeah. So the foot, the mammal, what do we know about how that uh, creature lived at this time? So we can look at the foot, and because of the shape of its claws and how long its uh, digits were, we can sort of tell what kind of behavior it had. So we, we figure it was much more of a, a land-living mammal. So I, I would say more like a rat than something like a squirrel. And that's actually really important because there's a big debate about whether some of these small feathered dinosaurs live mostly in trees or mostly on the ground. And so when they found the, the specimen with a bird in it, people were like, ah, it must be in trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they found one with a fish in it. They're like, oh, well, we don't really know now. And now finding this mammal, which lives mostly on the ground, it, it reinforces the, the idea that, again, like a cat or a fox, these animals would probably live mostly on the ground but could take things that flew down when they landed and would probably go walk by the rivers. And if a fish was in the shallows, they'd grab it out as soon as they could. And um, basically were really adept little hunters on the ground being able to run down a bird before it could take off, catch a small mammal darting through the grass, or fish a, a small fish out of the stream. Okay, so two things. I want to go back to the moment where you see something that nobody else has seen. Is that just how science works? It's a little bit of luck, careful observation, getting a new set of eyes on something. That's a pretty spectacular moment. Oh, it, it is basically how science works. A lot of times that uh, there's luck involved. I mean, anything from if you're walking out in the field and you go to one side of a hill or another, if you'll find a, a bone jutting out or not. Um, if you go one day uh, and a rain happened the night before or not, could expose a bone or not. So for the field that I work in paleontology, there is some luck involved. But having a a lot of different eyes looking at specimens is is really good because sometimes people will focus on different aspects of things or bring different experiences or just have a a different take. And as soon as they see something, they start talking to you and you start discussing back and forth. You you can bring different uh, knowledge bases to the table and really it helps you create a uh, an understanding of what actually happened, in this case, 120 million years ago. Yeah. You mentioned flight and studying flight, and this is another paper we want to dive into, which is really learning how maybe our ideas of flight based on birds that we know today are very different from prehistoric flight. Tell us about that. 
So one of the biggest challenges is understanding how birds became such expert flyers. Um, we know that feathers, for example, were around in, in dinosaurs that weren't flyers. We know that the earliest birds are pretty small, and we know some of their close relatives. And so we can look at their anatomy and say, well, what was going on here? But one thing that was really interesting about this work is my colleagues have been using these uh, great laser fluorescence um, scanning techniques to really show uh, soft tissue, so muscle, skin, um, even fat in some cases, uh, outlines that we never saw before. So now we can actually not just look at a skeleton, but actually flesh it out. Wow. One of the... one of the interesting things is, is a lot of these earliest birds, if you look at their chest region, um, the sternum is very different than modern birds. Modern birds, and anyone who's had a turkey or, or a chicken recently will know that they have a big sternal plate with a big, it's called a keel, so that the, the raised ridge down the middle with really big muscles attached to it. And those are the flight muscles. And they not only push the wings down, but there's actually muscles on there which loop up and attach the back of the arm to pull the wings up. And so... Birds have a lot of muscles down there because that helps with stability when they fly. But these earliest birds and their direct ancestors didn't have a big sternum. They had a, if they had any at all, it was very flattened. So what we were finding is if we look at some of these earliest birds, since they didn't have the big muscles on the bottom on their chest to, to, to lift and move their arms, they actually had really big shoulders uh, and probably big back muscles. And so basically they were doing a, a less efficient but a sort of a brute force approach to getting the wings to move fast enough and generate enough power to keep them in the air until over millions of years they evolved the uh, changes in their anatomy to get the, the flight stroke that we know today. Can you see that happening in the fossil record? We actually can. There's a great series of fossils coming out of uh, parts of Europe and mostly in China which shows different stages in the transition from a, a feathered, ground-living uh, dinosaur to a bird which, if I, were, if I were to put feathers on it and put it in your hand today, you would pretty much not be able to tell it apart from the sparrow that you see walking to outside your door this morning. Hmm. Um, so we can see a, a great series that's happening. But of course, with any sort of science, we always want to figure out the exact details of how, when, why, and what drove these different changes. And so that's what we're working on right now and in various different uh, approaches to, to, an- to answer this. Tell me a little bit about, you know, you've mentioned China a couple times. We were just talking on the show about the war in Ukraine, how geopolitical things from conflict to trade issues to pandemics, um, how does that affect doing this kind of scientific research? How has it affected your scientific research? Well, uh, an easy example from the pandemic is uh, I have a, a conference coming up in, in later in the spring in Hong Kong with some of my colleagues from this paper um, and trying to make sure that we can get everybody in from around the world safely uh, is difficult. In fact, we were supposed to do this last year. And then, of course, we had to cancel it because of, of COVID. And we actually had to do an online sort of uh, early version of, of some of the talks with, with colleagues because they, they simply couldn't get into or out of China at that time. Um, as for conflicts, I have a, a lot of friends and colleagues who do work in places like South America. I've been there myself in, in Africa, in uh, other parts of the world where there's sometimes destabilization will cause you to not be able to go to where you originally planned on going or have to leave early. And this can uh, 
I mean, it obviously impacts your work, but it can also affect uh, what sort of studies you can do. And it can re- result in challenges in actually coordinating with local communities to make sure that your knowledge gets passed down to the people whose area you're working at. Hmm. And that is something that in recent years has been a, a bigger focus uh, to try and make sure that, you know, someone from South Dakota doesn't just fly down to Columbia, take some specimens and fly back, that we work with the locals, try and build up local museums, uh, talking to local teachers and uh, universities, to try and make sure that they get access to the knowledge that we're taking from there. Can things be lost permanently? I think of, of paleontology and anthropology as a very patient science in the sense that maybe if you can't get to a location now, you can get there, you know, somebody else can get there five years from now, 50 years from now. But on the other hand, when things are destroyed, they're destroyed forever, whether it's because of, of development or, or shifts in climate. Um, is it a patient work or is it urgent? Uh, it, it can depend on, on what's going on. So uh, erosion can really compromise uh, specimens within a few years. Okay. Um, sometimes you get more drastic things. For example, some of your listeners might have heard of Spinosaurus uh, from Jurassic Park and things like that. And we actually, up until very recently, didn't have much real data on that because the specimens that we had were destroyed in the bombings of World War II. Mm. So sometimes there's, there's uh, acute actions like that can damage specimens, but other times because you can't get back to a site for five or ten years, just erosion, and this is especially true in places where there's high rains or if you're in areas where there can be a large amount of vegetation growth, they can really uh, affect your site. And so it, it it can be, it's, it's less time sensitive than some things, but there are areas that it, it can be uh, more urgent to make sure you get there and get back um, to make sure that the data doesn't get uh, literally washed away. Yeah. I, I want to talk about, in these two papers specifically, if you could give me some examples of of the relevance of it for the greater scientific community. How does this sort of, you know, enter the flow of what we know and help other researchers move this knowledge forward. Just when you look at a paper like this, it's so significant on its own, but then also it contributes to this wider knowledge. Talk about that, please. Well, so for the flight one, um, besides the use of these techniques, by identifying the, the, the muscles and the relative proportions, we can do things like looking at physiology and how physiology changed. We can actually look, and this is something that some of my colleagues and I are are really interested in, is that different early bird groups, and actually close relatives of them, might have evolved flight independently. And so one of the questions could be is, when they all try and figured out how to get into the air, did they all use a single solution or were there multiple solutions? And that could sort of tell us a lot of important things on how you learn to uh, do these really complex and energetically challenging behaviors. Uh, an analogy I like to use is if I had a, a hundred people and I say, I want you to swim the length of the, the USD swimming pool, um, people will do all different kinds of strokes and they'll all get across. But if I start to do timing and say, okay, only the next, only the, the top 10 will be able to stay, you'll, you'll probably see that only a single sort of stroke will end up being the only one that people used to, to win. Is that the case, or was it simple fact that even back 120 million years ago, even before this, 160 million years ago, 
that it wasn't that you could do all these experiments and and all of them w- could start off on the same plane. It might be that there was really was only one solution, and it's sort of everyone tried, but until they hit that right one, no one could actually succeed. So th- these are big questions on how evolution occurs, especially at these big changes. And how long does it take? Like what sort of time frame were we talking about before some of those changes are made? So that's another interesting thing. So um, the very first small feathered dinosaurs, which are close to birds, are from 160 million years ago. And the very first bird called Archaeopteryx is from about 150 million years ago. And a lot of the, by 120 million years ago, we have a huge diversity of birds. Again, a lot of them looking very, very modern flying around eating insects and and, and uh, competing with the other flying animals called pterosaurs, those big bat-winged creatures. You, again, you've probably seen in movies and TV. Yeah. Um, so that, that seems to be a relatively rapid uh, change. And the, the interesting thing is we know of three times when flight appeared within animals with backbones, vertebrates. There are those pterosaurs. And the, the problem is we the first ones we find in the fossil record look like a pterosaur. We don't really have a really good sense of where they c- came from. And then we have bats, which, again, the very first bats we find in the fossil record look like bats. We have, don't have a really good fossil record where we came from. But with birds, we actually do. So this does allow us to sort of get a sense of how quickly these solutions to these really difficult problems of overcoming, well, physics, um, can happen within a, a lineage. And that can help inform us as we look back over time on what sort of... Uh, breadth of, of, of time we should be looking at to see, well, how long does it take for whales to evolve? How long does it take for this trait to evolve, this trait to evolve? And then that can tell us what sort of environmental pressures were going on, how that affected everything. If you were advising a movie crew on how to design a f- dinosaur flying based on these, you know, shoulder muscles, and <laughs> like, what would you, what would you say? Like, it really would have looked like this. Does it look clumsier? Does it look harder? Harder for sure. I would say that it would look, it wouldn't look as effortless as you're seeing a a bird fly. You would see that these animals were really trying and that when they actually did fly, they needed to get somewhere fast. And so if I was going to advise a movie crew to make a movie with these little guys, I'd say, okay, most of the time they're going to be running around. They're going to be chasing things down on foot. But when they fly, it's something that that they have to do it for a purpose. Huh. And so make it, make it show that this is a concerted effort um, to do this. It's not just something that they're doing for fun. Make it count. I yes. got one more question, and that's that presuming that we're all around and birds are around 120 million years from now, how, how are you seeing them evolve? So one of the challenges for bird evolution is that because they sort of sold out for flight, it really makes it difficult for them to uh, evolve in the ways that, say, mammals have. Okay. Um, so you see the big land birds like ostriches and emus, and they're sort of stuck in what they can do. And even before uh, about 30, 40 million years ago, we had these uh, predatory land birds. Again, they look very similar to that, just with bigger heads, and they could run around. But it's very difficult for them to do a lot of, a lot of the behaviors like digging and stuff like that, that that mammals can do because mammals have, well, all four limbs available to use it. So I would say that uh, you're probably going to see still flying versions of the birds. They'll probably be more refined and more specialized to whatever environments are around then. You might see some uh, 
land living birds, but unless all mammals go extinct and actually probably all crocodiles, because a long time ago, crocodiles used to dominate the land as well. They used to run around as fast as uh, <laughs> cats and dogs could do. No. That birds will probably <laughs> stay in the air because they've, they've, they've really specialized into that. So that's probably what we're going to see. Um, Let's take a moment for paleontological poetry. You may not know Katherine Lee Bates, but you likely know her words. She's most famous for writing the lyrics to America the Beautiful. Today, we're bringing you her poem, Geology Made Easy. That poem summed up the extent of geological knowledge from Bates's era. Just a note, paleontology has come a long way in the past hundred years or so, so some parts of this poem may no longer be accurate. Here's SDPB's Evan Walton reading Geology Made Easy. I tell a tale which makes me pale for its dismal recollections, that coming classes may avail themselves from its inflections. I cone the rocks with anxious eye, a student meek and docile, when a distant whisper floated by, O come and be a fossil. Farewell to Cenozoic age, with all its toiling daughters, Wise time turned back to his yellow page, I swam in ancient waters. And first I met in the aching void the solemn Eozoan, and the stem of the salt crinoid vibrated in my moan. I'm lonely in the world, I cried, and shouted o'er and o'er. But not a rhizopod replied from the silent protozoa. The graptolite and trilobite to a gather temper won me, but oh, for the orthosaurotite, and smile he smiled upon me. Thou brachiopod, art mollusk or worm? I asked with a mixed sensation. But I fled from the frivolous placoderm, nor lingered for conversation. I blushed to hear the ganoid wail. He sobbed, I'm not a stoic, and I've lost my vertebrated tail in the early metazoic. But I scoffed and longed for a teleost with the most intense of wishes. For my sympathies had all been lost on those queer Devonian fishes. The Bellamite and the Polyp weird exceedingly did act ill, and from the Lepidendron jeered the bitter Pterodactyl. I sought to rest on the marshy shore where the Matherepidont's ample, but I heard the hoarse Bacatran roar neath a cryptocramic bramble. Yet the sedentary fear I name and my ingenious indignation, my metaphoric move became a quiet, distinct formation. The beast I saw was shy and small, no elephant or camel. Twas only a marsupial, but oh, it was a mammal. I leapt for joy, but hope deceives. With heat he seemed to swelter. The sea I cad neath her fonded leaves in vain proposed a shelter. He scorned that generous gymnosperm. No conifer revived him. He vanished, never to return. His jaw alone survived him. The somber Sigillara sighed. He would not linger for us, and only to our calls replied. The winsome Ichthyosaurus. Too bad, the Saurion murmured, but he'll surely come tomorrow. While down the drear Connecticut the dinosaur marched in sorrow. But soon herbivores arose, not far behind the lemur, and some had too many toes, which gave 
a proud demeanor. But now I mourned my task begun. The country grew so hilly. I didn't like the Mastodon, and I found the glaciers chilly. My gentle temper had been wrecked. That used to be so placid. I had a headache, the effect of much carbonic acid. My bones, I said, for toil you can find only one vocation. Before the coming age of man, try solidification. A modest shale or argillite would make the pleasing closet, or in a somber cyanite your relics I'll deposit. Not so, says fate, you'll have to wait. I can't accept your datum. Geology prepares her late and most distressed stratum. A future race shall seek your place, your geologic station, and find your last embedded trace in the examination. That was the poem, Geology Made Easy, by Catherine Lee Bates. It was read to you by SDPB's Evan Walton, who still read that poem for me, even after seeing its length and the challenging pronunciations he had to tackle. Thanks, Evan. When we come back, we'll learn about a South Dakota paleontologist studying past eras of extreme climate change. Plus, we'll discuss how we could apply those lessons while adapting to our currently warming world. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Ellen Kester, in for Lori Walsh. Fossils are windows to a world long gone. These remnants of the past tell researchers about the animal they once were, but they can also uncover important information about the environment in which the animal lived. Rachel Short is an assistant professor and WSIPA program coordinator at the SDSU Extension Rapid City Regional Center. She contributed to a paper that looked at what certain mammal fossils can tell us about animals living through extreme climate change, and how that research can help us better understand our own worming world. She spoke with Lori in March. This is an exciting paper, especially once you get into ankle bone research. I'm like, what? And then it's all there. So tell people a little bit about biodiversity and sort of set the stage about what, what are some of the basic things we can tell the relationship between a mammal and the environment. Sure. So the biodiversity I'm looking at um, are largely mammals. So I look at animals like bison and sheep and wolves and cats and these animals that live together in the environment that we we can see in the Black Hills even. Um, And I'm thinking about how their environment is well suited to support them. Um, Is the food there? Can they interact with the grass when they're moving through the environment? You know, they have to walk on the surface. And then we look backwards and use the fossils to understand what the past looked like. And that gives us this um, idea of change through time. So um, it's it's been really interesting work um, thinking about how these mammals are interacting with the environment. Okay. Ankle bones. What do we know yes. about the significance <laughs> of ankles and what they can tell us in mammals? Sure. So the ankles are related to how they walk. So that's um, where the substrate comes into play. So if you think about your heel bone on the ground and when you're walking, you lift your foot, each animal is like that too. So the shape of the ankle bone tells us what the environment was like. Was it a forest or was it a desert? Things like that. (laughs) All right. So what do we know about mammals in like the present? You mentioned the Black Hills, the Midwest in general. There's a lot in this research that really um, uncovers some of those stories. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, so um, right now we're working um, with a global data set to really understand how these mammals live together. And the next step is to pull out these case studies and dive into what the Great Plains is experiencing and what South Dakota is experiencing. Um, with fossil sites in the Black Hills especially, um, they're so numerous that they provide a really good record. So um, one of the reasons I was excited to take this job with South Dakota State is the extensive fossil record that we can use to understand these changes. Help people understand the ankle bone ratio. What are you measuring there and how? Get into the methodology yes. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> the math of it. Um, so the yeah. ratio is the length of the whole bone relative to the length of, we call it the tuber. And that's where your calf muscles attach and flex your ankle bone. So in mm. us, um, that tuber is pretty short. Um, it doesn't stick back very far. Um, but in some animals, it's a pretty good size for that muscle attachment to flex the foot um, while locomoting. All right. So there's a trade-off here, speed, strength, what uh, what kind of decisions <laughs> are being made from an evolutionary standpoint to make adaptations? Right. So that's true. The um, trade-off is very real. And um, we looked at it um, in the hoofed mammals and in the carnivorans that they live with um, and found that yeah, there's a trade-off depending on the environment. It, do you want to be able to run fast? If you're living in the grasslands, maybe you can run a straight line. Um, but if you're in the forest, you may have to dodge around trees. And so that that's really um, how we get to the vegetation that they're in is that functionality. Yeah. How about predator or prey, carnivore, herbivore? Are you seeing strong differences that are, are there useful in this context? So they have um, an interesting relationship. Um, so the bone is related to the vegetation cover in both groups, but it's um, functionally opposite. So um, we use the two groups as independent pieces of our model, um, which actually provides a lot of information. So when we then apply it um, to the past, we can draw in information from both groups um, and, and look at how they're interacting together. All right. So what about those extreme changes in climate? How are you measuring that? What are you learning through this research? Uh, so my work largely thinks about how animals are going to respond to climate and environment in the future. Um, so we're looking at the past responses before humans really became part of the equation to know what a natural response might look like. So then with the projections of climate that these animals might experience, we can get a better estimate of what the biodiversity might look like in the future and kind of try to get our management and conservation efforts ahead of it so that we're ready um, for those responses to extreme climate. Yeah, let's explore that a little more because I find that so fascinating that, you know, sure. th these are metrics that can evaluate things and therefore be applied today. Tell me more about how some of this work might be applied. Yeah, that's a great question. It's a fascinating part of our research right now. Um, we are just starting to move into the application of these models. A lot of it has been developing the models and incorporating the fossils. But our goal is to create a, we call it a trajectory of change. So we have the past, we know what's there today in the present. Now we're modeling the future and um, trying to tie these pieces together and understand um, what could be. Is there anything you wish you knew, something that you can't quite, uh, a missing piece, uh, a data set that, boy, that would be useful if we had, what do you <laughs> not have access to that, boy, you wish you did? <laughs> 
Um, well, data that I will have access to, I suppose, um, okay. is just traveling to more museums and collecting more data. And that's uh, feasible. It's going to happen. Um, I'm taking on graduate students to expand that work. Um, data that I wish I had that I won't have would be, you know, the future data. Um, we have mm. excellent models. We have excellent um, expected projections, but we, we don't have definitives. And so that's where these models um, really become useful is filling in those gaps. Tell me about finding a fossil at a museum and then how do you evaluate it? What Are you putting it through a machine? Are you taking it back to the lab? What happens when you want to test something? Yeah, so we do it the old-fashioned way. Um, we go to museums mm -hmm. and we go through drawers um, and pull out these ankle bones and um, use calipers, so kind of like a big ruler, and take these measurements on the bone. And then we take all of that data back with us um, to my office here and, and run the numbers. Um, so I generally spend a week or so at a time at a museum um, going through all the fossils I can find. I love that. That's a good job right there. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I have no skills to do that, but I sure like hearing about it. Uh, Dr. Rachel oh, Short, sure uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being here with us. We appreciate your time. Yes, thank you for having me. Earlier this year, a South Dakota scientist received one of the most distinguished honors in the scientific community. By doing so, she's made history. Lori Anderson was the first woman in South Dakota to be named a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science while working at a state university. She spoke with Lori Walsh in March about her fellowship, research, career, and a little bit about the musician with whom she shares a name. This is one of those days. We all love being in South Dakota, and we get frustrated sometimes about the things that we can't figure out. And we're grounding ourselves today with the women who are figuring some things out. So congratulations. What does this uh, mean to you in um, this community of scientists? Well, it was a very great honor to be, to be awarded this uh, fellowship. Um, I didn't know that someone had nominated me it was really quite a surprise, and in fact, when I got the first email about it, I thought it was spam. <laughs> <laughs> Delete. Report as fish. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You're in, the section, you're in the section on geology and geography, so tell us a little bit about your work and help us understand the things that drive you to do the science that you do. Okay. So, yeah, I am a... Uh, geologist by training. Um, I'm a paleontologist by expertise, and I work on uh, invertebrate organisms, so anything without a backbone. Um, and I, I guess what drives me is just the, once you start looking at something, there's always 10 more questions that pop up uh, after that, and, and that just keeps you going day to day. Yeah. Who invited you into the world of science? Were there other women who opened doors for you? Were there other men who intentionally said, make sure she has a seat at the table in this sort of glass ceiling world? Well, I would say it starts with uh, actually my family. Mm -hmm. um, my mom in the 1930s was a chemistry major in college. 
And then both of my sisters were biology and uh, majors in college. And so it was just the thing to do is go and do um, go and do some, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, science in college. So I went to college and I was going to be a, um, a high school teacher in biology. And actually I was doing music too. And <laughs> for life science certification in Minnesota, you had to take two geology classes. And I had convinced myself that I would hate those courses. And I got into that the first course, and by the end of the semester, or actually the end of the quarter, I w had become a geology major in addition to my t first two majors. And I think what really drove me was uh, the 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 labs and the geology courses were all about solving puzzles rather than memorizing things, and that just sparked me to to actually be challenged to figure things out. And from there on, I went to graduate school, but I think it was that, that geology course that really set me on my way. What is the puzzle of the fossilization process of clams or oysters that <laughs> keeps you up at night? Because I'm all in already, just hearing that, yeah. Oh, there's yeah. so many different things that you can look at with, um, with uh, invertebrate fossils, clams, oysters, things like that. Uh, because I had background in biology and I also had um, geology background, my approach has been to take analyses and tools that we use in paleontology and apply it to modern systems. So some of the work that I've done includes um, uh, studies of oysters and other marine life affected by the deep water horizon uh, spill in 2010, uh, looking at uh, collaborating with a number of uh, biologists to look at the ecology of, of clams that live in seagrass beds in, in uh, tropical parts of the U.S. and uh, nearby Bahamas, and, and really um, looking at how the th parts of an organism that can be preserved in the fossil record uh, can be related to how they operated as a living organism. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your leadership at Mines um, from, <laughs> a, from an administrative standpoint and from really inviting the next generation of scientists to do their best work. Yeah, I serve as the head of the Department of Geology and Geological Engineering at uh, South Dakota Mines, and I'm also the director of the Museum of Geology on campus. And th those opportunities, the opportunities I've had over the last 12 years to work with faculty, work with leadership, and especially to work with students as they make progress towards their degrees has been um, really rewarding and very in enjoyable. And ha having that opportunity to both be a scientist but also be a teacher and being an advocate for those people that I am charged with taking care of is, is a tremendous responsibility but a great joy as well. Yeah. You are a musician, but not the musician, Laurie Anderson. No. But I do hope that you know who Laurie <laughs> Anderson is. Because I do. <laughs> you do good. You and I are the only ones here listening to this. Who <laughs> well, <remember. laughs> you know, one of her albums was entitled Big Science. Yes, so. exactly. That's why I was asking you. <laughs>
That's our show today. As the amazing Lori Walsh always says, we hope that it served you. It also wraps up our week of science coverage on In the Moment. We'll return on Monday with live conversations with important South Dakota voices. And yes, my co-producer and I have already lined up some new science stories for you. I don't want to give too much away, but I will say they're going to be quite buzzworthy. Before I get to our show credits, I want to share my favorite dinosaur with you. I'm a big fan of the Allosaurus. The Allosaurus was the king of the Jurassic period before the T-Rex stole the show in the late Cretaceous. In fact, the Allosaurus looks like a smaller version of its more famous cousin. There's one thing about the Allosaurus that leaves paleontologists scratching their heads. How did it kill its prey? Unlike the unmatched and crushing bite force of the T-Rex, the Allosaurus's bite force was relatively wimpy compared to its size. Some clues are that the head of the Allosaurus is built incredibly tough, and its jaws can open unusually wide. So one theory is that the Allosaurus opened its jaws as wide as possible and slammed its dagger-like teeth into its prey over and over while running alongside it. That's under some academic contention, but I just think it's a fun theory. In the moment's executive producer is Kara Hetland. Ari Youngeman is my co-producer. Our engineer is Colton Nicholson. This week, we featured work from SDPB's Lee Strubinger and Kara Hetland. Evan Walton read us our poem today. Our regular host is Lori Walsh. Jackie Hendry stepped in as guest host a few days this week. I want to give her an extra special shout out. I'm Ellen Kester, your guest host today. Thank you for listening. <laughs>